Shri Guru and Gauranga, all glorious to Shiva Prabhupada, Ma Om Vishnu Padaya, Krishna Prastaya Bhutale, Shri Mati Bhakti Vedanta Swami Niti Namane, Namaste Sarasvati Deve, Gauravani Pacharane, Nivasesa Sanivadi Bhaskachade Satarane, Vandeham Shri Guru, Shri Utah, Padakamalam Shri Guru and Vaishnavamscha, Shri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raganatam Vitam Sam Sajivam, Sadvaitam Sadvadutam Parijanas Aita Krishna Chaitanya Deva, Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lalita Shri Vishakam Vitamscha, Vanchakapachi Vishakhi Pistanaviyavata Padijanam Pavanaviyo Vaishnavaviyamon Maha. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. It's October 7, 2020 in Hawaii over the internet. We're reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 4, Chapter 22, Prithi Maharaj's meeting with the Four Kumaras, Text 46. Swameva Brahmano Bhukte Swameva Brahmano Bhukte Swam Vaste Swam Dadati Cha Swam Vaste Swam Dadati Cha Tas Yaivan Ugrahenanam Tas Yaivan Ugrahenanam Punjate Kshatriyadaya Punjate Kshatriyadaya Please chant. Swam. Swam. Own. Own. Eva. Eva. Certainly. Certainly. Brahmana. Brahmana. The Brahmana. The Brahmana. Bhukte. Bhukte. Enjoy. Enjoy. Swam. Swam. Own. Own. Vaste. Vaste. Clothing. Clothing. Swam. Swam. Own. Dadati gives in charity. Gives in charity. Cha. Cha. And. And. Tasya. Tasya. His. His. Eva. Eva. Certainly. Certainly. Anugrahena. Anugrahena. By the mercy of. By the mercy of. Anam. Food grains. Food grains. Bunjate. Bunjate. Eats. Eats. Satriya Adayaha. Satriya Adayaha. Other divisions of society headed by the Ksatriyas. Other divisions of society headed by the Chatriyas. Srila Prabhupada's translation. The Ksatriyas, Vaishyas and Sudras eat their food by virtue of the Brahmana's mercy. It is the Brahmanas who enjoy their own property, clothe themselves with their own property, and give charity with their own property. Shri Prabhupada's purport. The Supreme Personality of Godhead is worshipped with the words Namo Brahmanya Devaya, which indicate that the Supreme Lord accepts the Brahmanas as worshipful gods. The Supreme Lord is worshipped by everyone, yet to teach others, he worships the Brahmanas. Everyone should follow the instructions of the Brahmanas, for their only business is to spread Shabda Brahma, or Vedic knowledge, all over the world. Whenever there is a scarcity of Brahmanas to spread Vedic knowledge, chaos throughout human society results. Since Brahmanas and Vaishnavas are direct servants of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, they do not depend on others. 
In actuality, everything in the world belongs to the Brahmanas, and out of their humility, the Brahmanas accept charity from the Kshatriyas or kings, and the Vaishyas or merchants. Everything belongs to the Brahmanas, but the Kshatriya government and the mercantile people keep everything in custody, like bankers. And whenever the Brahmanas need money, the Kshatriyas and Vaishyas should supply it. It is like a savings account with money with the depositor can draw out in his will. The Brahmanas, being engaged in the service of the Lord, have very little time to handle the finances of the world, and therefore the riches are kept by the Kshatriyas or the kings, who are to produce money upon the Brahmanas' demand. Actually, the Brahmanas or Vaishnavas do not live at others' cost. They live by spending their own money, although it appears that they are collecting this money from others. Kshatriyas and Vaishyas have no right to give charity, for whatever they possess belongs to the Brahmanas. Therefore, charity should be given by the Kshatriyas and Vaishyas under the instructions of the Brahmanas. Unfortunately, at the present moment, there is a scarcity of Brahmanas, and since the so-called Kshatriyas and Vaishyas do not carry out the orders of the Brahmanas, the world is in a chaotic condition. The second line of this verse indicates that the Kshatriyas, Vaishyas, and Shudras eat only by the virtue of the Brahmanas' mercy. In other words, they should not eat anything which is forbidden by the Brahmanas. The Brahmanas and Vaishnavas know what to eat, and by their personal example, they do not eat anything which is not offered first to the Supreme Personality of Godhead. They eat only prasada, or remnants of the food offered to the Lord. The Kshatriyas, Vaishyas, and Shudras should eat only Krishna Prasad, which is afforded them by the mercy of the Brahmanas. They cannot open slaughterhouses and eat meat, fish, or eggs, and, or drink liquor, or earn money for this purpose without authorization. In the present age, because society is not guided by Brahminical instruction, the whole population is only absorbed in sinful activities. Consequently, everyone is deservedly being punished by the laws of nature. This is the situation in this age of Kali. Swam eva brahmano bhunte swam baste swam didati cha tas yai vanu grahenanam bunjate kshatriya daya. The kshatriyas, vaishyas, and sudras eat their food by virtue of the brahmanas' mercy. It is the brahmanas who enjoy their own property, clothe themselves with their own property, and give charity with their own property. Quite an astonishing verse here on the value and the place of. Brahminical culture. Uh, so generally people think that the Brahmanas, the religious people, are living off the charity of others. But here uh, it is said that everything belongs to the Brahmanas and those who give them charity are really returning the Brahmanas' own money to them, like a banker gives you the money from your own account. So how is this supposed to work? Well, really all property belongs to the Lord. Everything is the property of the Lord. Everyone has a quota. And we, uh, the Brahmanas see this. The Brahmanas perceive this. This is the particular quality of the Brahmanas. They look at the world and they see uh, there is God. There is Krishna. They don't look at the world and just see, oh, there's a tree, uh, there's a cat. It's not, it's not how they perceive the world. Uh, just like in the Brahma Samhita, it says, Premanjana Charita Bhakti Vilochanena Santa Sadaiva Rudayeshu Vilokhayantiya Cham Samasundra When Ramananda Roy was uh, speaking with Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, 
and ostensibly taking the role of the teacher of Mahaprabhu. At one point he said, uh, you know, I, I think you're Krishna. <laughs> he said, I, 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 I don't think that you're just a sannyasi, I think you're Krishna. Lord Chaitanya said to him, oh, you see Krishna everywhere. This is the vision of a Mahabhagavata. A Mahabhagavata sees Krishna everywhere. Uh, as it says in the Isopanishad, for one who sees the Supreme Lord everywhere and sees everything in him, uh, what can be illusion or anxiety for him. So he sees like this. He sees everything is, is Krishna's energy. Everything belongs to Krishna. Not just belongs to Krishna. I always like in the conversation between Krishna and Rukmini, where Krishna says that she should divorce him because he doesn't own anything, because he's poverty-stricken. And Rukmini says, you don't have to own anything, you are everything. That Krishna is everything. And you can say like that. Just like in the Chatur Sloki, Krishna says that just like... Uh, you know, air enters into everything, yet it retains its own quality. All the elements enter into everything, yet retain their own quality. So I have entered into everything, and yet I've maintained my own quality. I've maintained my own separate existence. Sarva kalami dham brahma. Everything is Krishna. So the brahmanas see this. Even the brahmanas who are not Vaishnavas, they see this. They can see that everything is spirit. That everything is the... It belongs to the divine, even if they have an impersonal conception of the divine. Uh, even the, the Buddhists, uh, they can see like this. Everything is divine. Nothing is mine. And the proper brahmana acts as a steward. So this is a very popular word among the Christians, to be a steward, to take care of something. Prabhupada's told you talking about the bankers. So I'm sure most of us have... Uh, a bank account and in the bank account it's our money in the bank account but it's being held by the bank and whenever we want money we go to the bank and we can withdraw the money from the bank uh, yeah I mean there's the, and the bank doesn't the bankers don't say no 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 you can't take your money it's, it's our money they're just holding it for us right if you ask somebody here would you hold this for me and then they, when you want it back, they you say, "No, can I have it back?" They, they give it back to you. They're holding it for you. So the brahmanas see the whole world like this. They see their quota. We've been discussing in Upanishad. How do you know what is your quota? So they see whatever is their quota, whatever is given to them by their honest labor in accord with their work done uh, that corresponds to their nature. If a person does honest work according to their nature then whatever they receive is their quota from the Lord. Uh, they see this as, as really belonging to the Lord. They don't see it as belonging to themselves. I mean, just like when uh, you work in some, for some business. Yeah, you work for some business, and the business gives you uh, a desk, right? They give you a chair, they give you a desk, maybe they give you a computer. They may, they'll give you whatever you need. Right? They give you staplers and pens and any, anything you need for your work in the office. And then they also pay you so that you can live. They pay you a salary. They give you vacations. Uh, they'll throw your birthday party. You know, so they, maybe there's a, you know, some office places, there's a gymnasium in the office, child care centers, so many things. 
meditation rooms, prayer rooms. So you're, but all this belongs to the company. It doesn't belong to the employee of the company. If the employee even takes one pencil home from work, uh, then that's stealing. Yes? I mean, many people do that, but it's stealing. It belongs to the company, and as soon as your job is finished with the company, then you leave all of that there. You don't, you don't take it with you. It didn't belong to you. You come use it for the company, for the company's purpose. So it's the company's property. You use it, and you use it for the company's purpose. That doesn't mean you can't also maintain yourself. The company provides you with a salary, as I said, vacations. Maybe they throw you a birthday party. They give you medical insurance. So the company provides for you to take care of yourself. It's not that you can't take care of yourself. It's not that you can't use the money given to you from the company uh, to go and buy yourself some shoes, to go and buy yourself some food. But the idea is that even you're maintaining yourself at home is so that you can serve the company nicely. I mean, honestly, that's the idea. The company wants to maintain you nicely at your home so that you're fit to work for the company. So the Brahminists see the whole world like that. They see that I, I'm working for God. Huh? I'm working for God. Everything belongs to Him. And they simply draw from uh, the Lord what they need for their service. And if some Brahmanas are making some huge educational complex or building a big temple or something, then they may draw a lot. And if they're uh, simply staying in a room and writing books, then they may draw a little. Uh, but they draw what they need, and they immediately understand that my life is for the, the purpose of the Lord. Now, what about those who are not brahmanas? So those who are not brahmanas, the ksatriyas, vaishas, and shudras, may have a harder time understanding this concept. Uh, they, they may have a harder time. It may be more difficult for them to understand this. The, the mentality of people in the different varnas is tends to be more and more abstract. So the work of the Brahmanas is more abstract than the work of the Kshatriyas, which is more abstract, than the work of the Vaishyas, which is more abstract than the work of the Shudras. The Shudras are dealing with, with very tangible objects. And so this conception may be more difficult for them. Of course, if one is a Vaishnava, then it doesn't matter whether one externally acts in any of the Varnas. In fact, a Vaishnava, in one sense, cannot be considered to be in any of the varnas, even that of a brahmana. Oh, yeah, a very nice quote where Prabhupada is, is saying like this. You cannot even call a Vaishnava brahmana. You cannot call them by any designation. Sarvapati, Vinirmu, Kanta, Partena, Nirmala, Rishikesha, Rishikena, Sevana, Bhakti, Ruchite. And Krishna talks about in the, uh, at the end of the Bhagavad Gita how anyone can become perfect doing their own work. So even if one has a Vaishya mentality or a Shudra mentality, if that's one's proclivity, but if one is a Vaishnava, uh, then one also sees in this Brahminical way. And that doesn't mean that everybody is going to be a teacher and a preacher and a scholar and a priest. Uh, but one will think Brahminically. This is kind of confusing in terms of what is a Vaishnava and what are the Varnas. It's actually very confusing <laughs> because we often will use the term Brahmana and Vaishnava interchangeably. And that is because one, one, once one becomes a Vaishnava, one sees like this. Now, a good example, of course, is Arjuna, who's a Ksatriya. 
but he is enjoined by the Lord to see like this, to see that everything belongs to the Lord, that you are simply a servant. He said, they are already put to death by my arrangement, and you can be but an instrument in the fight. So Arjuna has this mood, right? And we find those acting as, as shudras, like Kolavitya Shiddhar. He had this mood with Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. So again, it, uh, ostensibly, uh, Vaishnava may appear to belong to a particular varna, uh, simply because we each have our proclivities, we each have things that we enjoy. Some of us enjoy doing the sort of work that a shudra would do. Some of us enjoy doing the kind of work that a vaishya would do. Some of us enjoy doing the kind of work that a ksatri would do. And we may not enjoy doing the kind of work that a brahmana would do. Uh, and sometimes Vaishnavas, and, and for Vaishnavas who are not on the transcendental platform, doing work according to their propensities to please the Lord is very helpful, it's not essential, but it's very helpful for purification. And then there are Vaishnavas who are above all uh, these considerations of personal purification, but they may act in the varnas uh, to facilitate a God-conscious society, to set an example, and so forth. We don't find very many examples in tradition or in the scripture. We do find some, but they're the exception of Vaishnavas who live as avadutas outside of a social system where you can't really designate their work. But the point is that a Vaishnava has this Brahminical mentality, no matter what kind of work they're doing. You know, they, they may be the governor. Now, like Raman and Roy by birth as a Kayasta was considered a Shudra, but the work he was doing was Satriya work. He was a governor. So they may be doing that work, or King Pratiparudra, who was the king of Orissa, is doing that work, but they see that everything belongs to the Lord. But for those who are not Vaishnavas, now Brahmanas who are not Vaishnavas may see that everything is divine, and that they are the stewards of the world, even if they're not Vaishnavas, because they may be philosophers and, and so forth and so on. But for the other groups, if they're not Vaishnavas, then they, they really have a hard time understanding that everything belongs to the Lord. But they can understand that everything belongs to the Brahmanas. It's like, okay, here's some person standing before me. I can understand that everything belongs to this person. Now, in ancient society, Brahmanas had a lot of material power. And I think that this fact is important to keep in mind. You know, when we were growing up, we read many, uh, what we would call fairy tales, about uh, many of them had people who could do magic, you know? So it still is very popular today, different fairy tales about people who can do magic. But the Brahmanas could do magic. You know, if they said, you become a frog, you became a frog, you know, you become an elephant, you become an elephant. They could curse you, they could bless you, they could say, you'll become rich, and you become rich. <laughs> and they would demonstrate their power in the Vedic Yagyas. Right? So they would sacrifice an animal, an old animal, in the Yagya, and then the animal would come out with a new life. Or if people had difficulty having a child, they'd do a Yagya, and a personality would appear out of the fire, and they would give this food to the woman, and it would act as fertility medicine, and then after uh, joining with her husband, she would become pregnant. They could do these, these things where they would demonstrate that they had power. They could do yagyas, and the demigods would come to participate in the yagyas. So people saw their power, 
And so if a Brahmana said, you know, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to curse you, it was a real deal, <laughs> you know. And people were afraid of them. And no one had power equal to the Brahmanas. We tell the story all the time about Vasista and Vishvamrita, that Vasista just raises his staff and all of Vishvamrita's weapons as the Ksatriya. And he had subtle weapons. The Ksatriyas had wind weapons and rain weapons and yawning weapons. And <laughs> but Vasista could counter all of them with his staff. Yeah, I mean, you know, from there comes our, our folklore and fairy tales of the wizard with the, with the staff the magician with the wand with the staff. Uh, the Brahmanas had their staffs. So they could, they could do that. And therefore people were afraid of them. I mean, it wasn't just that they were inculcated in respecting Brahminical culture as part of their own cultural upbringing. That was certainly true. But in addition to that, they were had some material fear. Again, we're speaking about people in general who are not Vaishnavas, who are basically materialistic people. And so if they're in a society where they're thinking, boy, you know, I better respect these Brahmanas. And they're brought up to say, the world belongs to the Brahmanas. The world belongs to the Brahmanas. And we are the servants of the Brahmanas, and anything the Brahmanas want, we give to them. That whatever we have in the world is belongs, you know, the people in general see the Brahmanas the way the Brahmanas see God. Just like we say, Sakshad Haritwena Samasta Shastra. You, you see the guru as Sakshad Haritwena. Like God. Taking the role of God. Oh, you can have some understanding of this that if a police officer asks me to pull over when I'm driving, I deal with the police officer, if I'm smart, as if that police officer is the whole government. Right? I give that police officer the respect that I give to the government as a whole. So the people in general, they're respecting the Brahmanas like that. And they're just like the Brahmanas are saying, I'm a servant of God, and I just take what I need and use for Krishna's purposes from the abundance of the Lord. So the rest of society sees like that with the Brahmanas. Now, Often it's not like that. People are thinking, well, I've earned this money, you know, I'm uh, taking care of this apartment building and collecting the rent as Exetria, or, you know, I'm running the town and I'm collecting a salary from the taxes. And so, you know, I've, I've earned this money. And what I give to the Brahmanas is out of my kindness. You know, it's, it's out of my kind. I don't need to give it to the Brahmanas. It's just out of my kindness. You know, I work so hard to grow this business and, and grow this cotton and grow this wheat and take care of these cows and whatever income I have is due to my own intelligence and my own hard work. And so it's just my mercy to give to the Brahmanas. And these Brahmanas are just, you know, lazy fellows. But that's not the mood in a Vedic society. The mood in a Vedic society is everything's the property of the Brahmanas. And when I'm working hard, I'm working hard again like an employee who's getting their compensation by the mercy of the Brahmanas. And this is done particularly because the Brahmanas uh, don't have the time, energy, or inclination to be making money directly. So the Vaishyas are the ones generating wealth in the society. The only people actually who generate wealth are the, are the Vaishyas. The Kshatriyas collect wealth in the form of rent or taxes and then uh, redistribute it to the people. 
and the uh, shudras, they're taking the, the items produced by the Vaishyas and they're turning them into uh, various commodities, uh, providing various services for the society. And the Brahmanas aren't doing that. I mean, the Brahmanas collect money and then redistribute it also. This is one of their occupations, to, be, to collect charity, to be a fundraiser, <laughs> uh, and then to redistribute charity. But they're, they're not really that interested in the wealth of the world. In fact, the disinterest in the wealth of the world on the part of the Ramanas is a lot of what qualifies them to do the work of Ramanas. Because a Brahmana's main interest is in teaching truth, in making truth visible, disseminating truth, guiding people in truth. And if they're very interested in wealth, then it's easy for them to be compromised. They could be politically compromised, they could be compromised in terms of business or compromised in terms of perks. And in modern society, we see this quite frequently, where people working in, in uh, what should be brahminical occupations, science and research and so forth, they're, they're compromised. So that, you know, they're employed by some pharmaceutical company and they're fudging the data on various drugs and then people are getting drugs that are making them sick or at least not making them better because the, those in Brahminical occupations don't have the mentality of a Brahmin. They don't have the training of a Brahmin. They may have the proclivity of a Brahmin, uh, but they don't have the proper uh, ta- uh, training. They don't have the proper mentality. Uh, so uh, we, have, we have things that are very topsy-turvy. But the those who are really who have the Brahminical proclivities are trained to cultivate Gyan and Vairagya. So they can't be bought. And Prabhupada likes to talk about how Chanika Pandi was offered a lot of money and he said, I, I don't need it. You know, I'm happy just living under this tamarind tree and my students collect some rice and my wife cooks the rice with tamarind and I'm happy. What else do I need? So if one is... Uh, is very attached to vairagya, which is also a material thing. But if one is very attached to vairagya, that's one's wealth. <laughs> it's one of the opulences. If one relishes that wealth, then they're not so subject to being polluted and corrupted. Yes? Uh, so therefore, it's the Kshatriyas and the Vaishyas mostly, the Vaishyas who are making the money, generating the wealth from nature, and the Kshatriyas who are redistributing it. So they're the ones interested in making the money. Shudras aren't so interested in making money. money. Uh, they want to be comfortable in life. They want to have a comfortable life. But they're not generally interested in amassing huge fortunes. So anyway, they have this mood in a proper society that, you know, they, they like to do that. The Vaishas want to earn a lot of money. <laughs> they want to work hard to earn money. That's, that's their pleasure. That's their, their taste what gives them life. But the properly trained Vaisha understands I'm working for the Brahmanas. The Brahmanas own the earth. I work for them. And so whatever, whatever they ask for something immediately, just like your boss asks for something, immediately you give them. Then the other point here is that the Brahmanas are feeding everyone. So we have this point about money and we have this point about food, that the Brahmanas are feeding everyone. So uh, again, the Brahmanas understand that Krishna feeds everyone. Everything is coming 
from Krishna. Like Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, those who engage in yajna, the demigods supply rain, they supply the food, and then we again offer that food in sacrifice. And there's a cycle set up between the humans, the demigods, and the Lord, this cycle of sacrifice where everyone has a life full of prosperity. So the Brahmanas again see that all food is coming from the Lord. What do we eat? You know, we've not been able to manufacture food. I remember years ago that Vishaka was writing regular column in Back to Godhead about cooking. She had helped with Yamuna's cookbook. And one of the articles said that no scientist had ever been able to create a grain of rice. And I remember the sentence, I was kind of taken aback, and I thought, that's true. You know, rice is a seed, and no one's been able to, it's a living being. No one's been able to create a seed. I mean, no, no one's been able to create artificial food that's actually food. Now, they can take the food supplied by Krishna, and they can recombine it in various ways. When they try to create artificial food, the food, the, the so-called food, causes disease instead of nourishment. And everyone knows this. You know, the, yesterday, Bir Krishna Swami was distributing bagels that one of his, that's a kind of bread for some of you who don't know, so one of his disciples is running a restaurant on the west coast of America, I think in Portland, Oregon, where um, they're, they're, one of the things that they make is bagels. So they had shipped these bagels to Bir Krishna Swami, and he was distributing them to the devotees. So I was just thinking of how I remember visiting uh, one devotee's house where, and you shouldn't do this, anyway, one devotee's house where they were buying bread from the shop, you know, bread made by the non-devotees, and, and they had bought bags and bags and bags of bagels. And I'm thinking, you know, like this bagel I had yesterday, it was a few days old, and you could, it had come in the mail. And you could tell that it was, and it was still edible, but it wasn't like a fresh-made bagel. It wasn't fresh-made bread. And I, when I was at this devotee's home, and they had all these bags of, of this bread that they had bought, and you look at the ingredients, and it's, it's full of chemicals, so that it will appear to have the soft, fresh-baked quality, right? They're, they're imitating it. Now, I'm sure all of us have seen the articles or the videos of people who buy some hamburger from McDonald's and they keep it for 20 years and it doesn't rot. <laughs> you know, this, this stuff is so full of chemicals. It doesn't rot. So if, if the stuff doesn't rot, well, then it can't digest either. Right? And, and you know, they come out with all these wonderful uh, processes of making artificial this and artificial that in the food, and then after some time it comes out that people are getting sick. People are getting sick from the artificial sweeteners, people are getting sick from the artificial fats and so on. So we can't really manufacture food. I mean, we, again, we can take food and we can combine it in many, many different ways. Like it's becoming very popular now for people to make imitation meat out of different vegetables and beans and, and things like that. So we can do that, but we can't, we can't just go in a laboratory and, you know, when, when I was a kid I used to watch this TV show, Star Trek, and in the 
on their computer, they would just have the computer synthesize food. They didn't have a garden in their spaceship. Uh, but, the, you know, when we were little, we thought that was great, that we could get synthesized food. But it's not the fact. You know, and the food that gives us the most nutrition, that according to Ayurveda is a rasayana, is food that's grown locally, organically, and that's tree-ripened or ripened on the plant, where it's gotten the full energy of the sun, the full energy of the earth, the full sap from the plant. and the, It acts as a, it's what's called a rasayana, and the body... Uh, immediately and fully digested. It brings great strength and health and energy. Like Krishna talks about food and the mode of goodness that prolong the duration of life and they give strength and health and energy. So the Brahmanas understand that all food comes from Krishna. Just like they understand the whole world comes from Krishna. In one sense, again, the food is Krishna. And what is the food made out of? We've talked about this many times how the food is a transformation of sunlight, right? Either directly if we're eating plant food or indirectly if someone's eating animal food, even like milk. So then it's, but it's come from the sunlight. It's primarily sunlight, sunlight, water, and some minerals from the earth. That's it. <laughs> that's, that's what it is, you know. So when uh, the sunlight and, and water and earth minerals combine together and they make wheat, and then we take the wheat and using uh, some more energy from the sun, we're grinding it into flour, and then we're using energy from the sun to cook it. The energy may be preserved in the wood or in dung or maybe uh, through electricity, which is all ultimately taken from the sun. And we use that and we transform the wheat into a chapati or into a bagel. <laughs> and then when we eat it, Krishna as the fire of digestion in our stomach, he turns the japati into our fingernails and into our nose and our ear and our hair and our skin and all these things. And so our body is, is a transformation of sunlight. Sunlight, water, and earth minerals, just like everything else. It's, it's kind of amazing, <laughs> you know, that there, Krishna has this way. And what is sunlight? It's it's the energy of the Lord, it's the eye of the Lord. Often the deity of the sun is understood as Surya Narayan, the Lord himself. So the Lord himself is the sun, and so the Lord is transformed into this food and then transformed into our bodies. And just meditate on that for a minute. So the Brahmanas are meditating on that. They're not just eating like, like an animal. You know, an animal just, I have some sensation of hunger. I just eat on the Anamoya platform or maybe the Pranamoya platform, just eating. And the Brahmana has this consciousness. This is, I'm eating God. <laughs> Everything is Krishna's energy. Again, even if they're not Vaishnavas, they have some, some awareness like this as Brahmanas, as philosophers. And so those who are Vaishnavas, of course, they yagya shastasina santo, munchite sarvakilbishai, munchite te tugam papam ye pachatyat makalanat. So they offer as a yagya, whatever food they eat, they offer to the Lord. It's the Lord's food. Yes. Uh, again, this consciousness of I work for a company and therefore everything I'm doing is for the benefit of that company. And those who are Vaishnavas, it, it goes further. They really see there's a person. There's a person, Krishna. 
and I'm offering to this person, Krishna, who's manifested all this food, who's the fire of digestion, who combines with the air to digest the food, who is the light of the sun, who is the taste of water, who is the fragrance of the earth, which makes an eggplant taste different from a potato, a carrot. And the Brahmanas then teach everyone how to eat. So the other classes, again, if they're not Vaishnavas, if they're Vaishnavas, it's a different thing. If they're not Vaishnavas, the Brahmanas teach them how to eat. How to eat proper food, how to offer everything to the Lord, how to see everything in relationship to the Lord. And then imagine how healthy everybody is. If everybody is, is eating in this way, everybody would be extremely healthy. And how little pollution there would be. You know, so much of the pollution in the world, it's caused by the, the vaishas who are just trying to make a corrupt vaishas who are trying to make a profit without thinking about sustainability and, and having a regenerative business. They're just thinking, let me just get something now. Let me just get something now. And so the brahmanas are feeling that I'm fed by Krishna's mercy, Krishna's prasadam, and the people are feeling I'm fed by the mercy of the brahmanas, and then people are happy and they're, they're prosperous, they're materially prosperous, and they're healthy. And then Prabhupada, also in this purport, speaks about that if we don't do this, then there's ruin. If we don't do this, there's karmic reactions. If we don't do this, and all we have to do is look around and say, oh, yes, <laughs> you know, our, our water is polluted, our soil is polluted, our air is polluted, the food that we're eating is often flown from long distances, produced by artificial means or full of chemicals that actually make us ill. As the, the clothes we're wearing are artificial and make us ill, the medicines we're taking, uh, everything is, is polluted. And it's just based on greed and exploitation and how we can get you know, the most money right now by cheating everybody and not how to benefit people and not how to connect people with the Lord. And the world is full of such anger, such anger, such frustration, you know, such blaming and, and it's, it's a horrible thing. You know, men blaming women, women blaming men, uh, workers blaming the capitalists, the capitalists blaming the workers, people blaming the police, the police blaming the people, the black people blaming the white people, the white people blaming the black people. I mean, it just, you know, blame and, and victimization and hatred. Uh, we don't live in a peaceful world. There's always some war going on in the world, if not two or three or four or five or six. There's, you know, wretched exploitation of people, just uh, horrific. It's, you know, if you, if you just read the news headlines in a day, then it's so depressing, right? You just think, oh, what a terrible world. Always some new story of, of people being exploited and people being angry and people being sick and people being cheated. So this is the, the state of the world. It's the state of the world. So... You know, when I joined the Hare Krishna movement, I was a starry-eyed idealist that thought that if I sold Srila Prabhupada's books at the airport, the whole world would be changed in a month or two. Um, 
although certainly our movement has had, the Krishna consciousness movement has had a huge effect, uh, definitely. I mean, a lot more people are vegetarian and vegan. A lot more people believe in reincarnation and karma. A lot of people are trying to live more in harmony with nature and with God. We certainly have had a huge effect. At the same time, there's still a lot more to be done. I probably like to say that Bhakti Vinod is a Vaishnava. He could have done everything, but he left something for us to do. And Chaitanya Mahaprabhu said, you know, there's so many fruits, I can't eat them all myself. I need others to help distribute them. So we have a, a duty to try to, first of all, we have to be conscious of Krishna. We have to be conscious of Krishna in the things of the world, in prosperity, in food. We don't want to go through life like an animal. And then we have to teach others. However it may be, I mean, each of us do it in our own way. Some of us are going to do it through music. Some of us are going to do it through furniture. Some of us are going to do it just through our relationships with other people. Some of us are going to do it just by being a Krishna conscious person. Some of us are going to do it by writing books. I mean, we all have our different ways that we're going to do this. But we want to change the consciousness of the world. We, we really do. We want to make everyone Vaishnavas, and if we cannot make everyone Vaishnavas, at least we want to have a class of people who can, a group of people who can guide others. So they may not become Vaishnavas directly, but at least they can be guided by those people. So that's, we, we do have a blueprint. We're not just a world-denying you know, stay in an ashram, cloistered from everybody, let's just do our own little communities mentality. No. We, we have a social philosophy. A social philosophy. That how the world can be prosperous. So the, the social philosophy is theoretical, how to see things philosophically, and it's also practical. And what's perhaps uh, counterintuitive to a lot of devotees is that although the brahmanas are absolutely necessary, those with the brahminical proclivity are absolutely necessary to guide the institution of a, of a social system, it can only be instituted by people with exatria proclivity. And this is a, a truth that's repeated throughout the Shastra. It's the exatrias who are going to institute the, the, a social system, not the brahmanas. And indeed, we've seen in our Krishna consciousness movement that those who have a Brahminical proclivity are not, have failed singularly at trying to institute Varnasha. But the, the Kshatriyas can do it. It's, it's what they do. It's what they're expert at. It, it, it's their Prabhudatta Desh. It's their realm of, of work. The Brahmanas guide the vision, but they don't execute it. They don't put it into action. It's Kshatriyas who actually have to execute. So we want to empower and um, we want to really encourage those who have a Kshatriya propensity, who really like to take care of people's needs on a large scale and to, to lead the world. Not, we're not talking about business leaders or leaders in the arts or leaders in psych, you know, leaders in philosophy, but those who want to lead social systems and protect people to really do so according to this template. You know, we have so many people who are in political office in the world on a small level like the mayor of a city or a big level like the 
the president or prime minister of a country, but they're all floundering. They don't know what to do. They don't know what to do. They, they get some things right and some things wrong. Some of them, you know, well, let's stop abortion. Oh, very good. But then let's eat cows, you know. Uh, they, they, none of them have it right. None of them understand. Uh, we, we don't see, I mean, maybe there's somebody in the world I don't know of who, but in general we can say that the political leaders, they don't understand how do you have a blueprint for a prosperous society. So, questions, comments? Additional subtractions. When you were a new devotee, you experienced, I guess many of us did, this feeling that distribute Prabhupada's books and this amazing revolution would take place like consistent in, with... Uh, like in two weeks. <laughs> with, yeah. Tadvag Vasargo Janataga Vitnavo. It's right in the beginning of the Bhagavatam. It... Um, Janataga Vitla means Vitlava means revolution. Uh, Janataga in, in the, the, the very simple lives of well, the Praja. And um, we, we've heard a lot of discussion about the rising moon of Mahaprabhu for the next 10,000 years, of which Prabhupada's books would be like the backbone of that rising moon. Um, I'm confused, or I have different thoughts of what that is really supposed to look like. We know that Prabhupada had said that we could change the we could change the tide of Kali Yuga, usher in Sachi Yuga. That's been stated. And sometimes I think, well, I, I don't know how that looks. Maybe it's something that happens simultaneously, kind of like what we're seeing now, that within our society and other Vaishnava societies, it's like we're we're, we're, we're living in a, in, a, in a beautiful, almost like a Satchanuga bubble, mm. you know, a Vaikunta bubble, that outside of the whole Kali Yuga is going on, but within those that enter into in, into the, the, the bubble of of, uh, of, of Lord Chaitanya's Lila, we're, we're not living in, in that Kali Yuga anymore. So how do you picture this 10,000-year rising moon of Mahaprabhu? What, what was what it... How do, what does that look like? How do I picture that? I don't. Yeah. I don't think that. I don't think I'm qualified. I think that it's that you're you're asking something above my pay grade. Uh, I'm sorry. These are you know. I'm a little foot soldier. These are the discussions that take place between you know Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and Lord Nityananda and Adwaita Charya, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're sometimes involving their sainapatis like like Shiva Prabhupada. But I think for us, we we follow instructions and we we don't pretend that we see the big the big picture. I, I don't think that that's possible. Mm. It, it, I, I believe it's hubris to think that it's possible. Now, what we can understand to a large extent is what an ideal society would look like, and in fact. We need to have clarity about that. And I would like to suggest that the vast majority of practitioners of Krishna consciousness with whom I am familiar have little or no clarity about that at all. I mean, it was, it was a few years ago that I was hearing a class 
about uh, Varnashram from one sannyasi who'd been studying Varnashram for 20 years and made a statement about the principles of Varnashram. And I said, you know, Maharaj, would you just give us bullet points? What are the principles of Varnashram? And he wasn't able to do that. I was recently in a in a meeting, virtual meeting of ISKCON scholars, some of whom made these statements that, you know, we're not supposed to establish Varnashram and there's there's no use to anything in Varnashram. I was just kind of like astonished. You know, I really couldn't couldn't understand why why would somebody say that? So there is there's not clarity. I mean, I, I really feel that at least we should have clarity about that. We should be able to describe, at least theoretically, what an ideal society would look like. What are people doing in an ideal society? I, I had a very um, heavy experience in, I think it was 2014, I went to the European leaders meeting, uh, I was invited, and I gave a three-hour presentation on the role of women in Krishna consciousness, the history and role of women in Krishna consciousness. So I naively thought that these being the leaders, that they would have had a vision of a Krishna conscious society. And so I asked them, we were in Europe, and I said, suppose that all of Europe was in Lord Chaitanya's movement. All of Europe was, was drowning in Lord Chaitanya's movement. And uh, again, it was about women. So I asked, what would women be doing? What would women be doing in terms of career? What would women be doing in terms of their social status? What would be do- women be doing in terms of bhakti? What would women be doing intellectually? And I was horrified by the very obvious fact, and the class is recorded, so you can judge for yourself, that these leaders had, at least obvious to me, never thought about this. They never thought about what would a Krishna conscious society look like on a, on a large scale. You know, they barely think about what will a Krishna conscious society look like on a small scale. So we have, you know, we've had these farm communities where we get cows and nobody thinks about how are we going to breed the cows so that it's sustainable for 20 years. They don't even think like that. Or temples that, you know, install three sets of, of huge deities. And they're not thinking, how are we going to sustain this deity worship for hundreds of years? So even on a very small scale, it, it's not thought about. You know, or we want to invite people to our community, how are we going to educate their children? How are we going to engage the children? What careers are we training the children? Even that level, what to speak of looking at the surrounding town, you know, look at, like here I'm in Hillsboro, look at Hillsboro, look at Hilo or you know, and suppose the, that town, just a little, a little town, little city, 20,000, 50,000 people, if that town were in Mahaprabhu's movement, it was fully, what would it look like? What would be happening, let, let's take Hilo, you know, what would be happening in the University of Hawaii at Hilo? What would be happening in the 
high schools and the, and the elementary schools. What would be happening in the hospitals? What would be happening in the research centers? What would be happening in the churches and the synagogues? I don't know if there's any mosques in here. You know, and then what would, what would the government be doing? What would the police force be like? There's a lot of talk in America about the nature of the police force. What would the police force be like? What would the government be doing? What would the various uh, branches of the government, how would they be operating? And how would the businesses be operating? What would ha be happening in agriculture? What would be happening in, in manufacturing? What would be happening in business? What would be happening even in the tourist industry? And what would be happening in the crafts? I mean, we do see in Hilo that there's a, there is some emphasis on God-centered crafts and, and crafts that are in line with the earth, mostly because of the connection with the native cultures, with the indigenous cultures. But, you know, what would it look like? And we should be able to have a vision. Because if we're going to go to the world and say, hey, we have the answer, or what is it? No, we should be able to describe it in a few thousand words. You know, for this, this book on career drama that Rukmini and I are working on, one of our chapters is called Vision for a Whole Society. It wasn't an easy chapter to write. You know, it was something that we took a long time. <laughs> what, what's our vision for society? How does it work? What are people doing? So I think we can do that. We haven't done it. You know, we, we tend to fight over minute details that aren't even applicable for 2020. You know, and a lot of times when people talk about Varnashram and an ideal society, they spend most of their time arguing about the position of women, which I find very unfortunate. Instead of looking at the society as a whole. Or I know someone who says, you know, we're starting a Varnashram community, but we're not having any Kshatriyas. And it's like, okay, well, that's not going to work. So that, anyway, I think we can do that. As little foot soldiers, we can do that. And if we start making propaganda in that way, and we have a template, then we can start fitting people into that template. But how it's going to play out, that's, that's the role of, of others. Not us. Good answer. Thank you. Sorry, it was a little long answer. Ramananda, were you had some kind of question? Do you have time? It's already seven. Uh, just maybe five more minutes. Something about the psychology of loving exchanges. Yeah, I attended a seminar some years ago, and I thought uh, how they presented it was uh, quite valuable, at least mm. to me. But, um, okay, so this is how it goes. It was uh, uh, people... Uh, can feel love from others uh, if they're, depending on what their mode is, either kinesthetic, auditory, I forget the term, but giving gifts, that was the third one. Mm -hmm. So as far as auditory, you know, that's right in the nectar of instruction, you know, um, revealing your mind and confidence like right. that. And the same for gifts, of course, the dati, that's there. Um, but kinesthetic, now definitely, uh, I mean, myself, I also feel affection when someone touches me. That's my primary language. The mm. others are there as well, but you have a primary. 
Um, as far as food, because I mentioned this here because it's talking about how the brahmanas, you know, give everything. So it does mention about food especially. Yeah. So that's a very big deal in uh, our philosophy. Yes. Uh, and it, but it's more like kind of like giving in charity, but it's not really addressed about uh, kinesthetic. Uh, well, I'm trying to remember which. Um Verse it's in in Sri Manishikshya Vrgnatasko Swami. I'm pretty sure it's verse seven, where Bhaktivinoda Thakur in his commentary is talking about how we can serve devotees, and he mentions embraces. So he talks about uh, you know like washing their feet, taking the dust from their feet, washing their feet, and embracing them. We find that Ambarish Maharaj, it's explained that he used his body to touch the body of the devotees. So, you know, it is there. It's not listed as one of the six loving exchanges of giving and receiving, uh, which okay. is it is interesting. It's definitely interesting. Uh, okay, then as far as, uh, you know, giving food uh, and giving in charity, aren't they very similar? Yes. Yes, they are. Uh, because you could give so many things in charity, and food could be one of the things you give in charity. You, you know, charity is not just money. You can give somebody clothing in charity, medicine in charity, education in charity. So many things you could give people in charity. Uh, it depends what you have. You can give people knowledge in charity. Uh, but sharing food is a particular kind of loving exchange. And I think that that is obvious all over the world in all cultures. That when people love each other, or they want to express love for each other, or they want to pretend that they have love for each other, <laughs> they share food. I mean, you know, if a, if people want to go out on a date, there's almost always food involved. You know, would you like to go out with me on a date? There's going to be food. There may not be gifts, but there's going to be food. When we think about, you know, spending time with family, there's almost always food involved if you're hanging out with your family. We think about, you know, nationalistic holidays, religious holidays. I mean, some involve fasting, but most nationalistic holidays involve food. So food is a way of expressing love as, as having a connection between people is, is very strong. So even though you could say it's one item of charity, um, it can be. It can be, but it's, it's such an important thing that is put aside as, as something in its own right, that the exchange of food. Anyway, I just see it as, as pivotal everywhere. I, I don't know in what you know, business meeting, a date, spending time with your relatives, celebrating a holiday, you know, when we want to express love for others, then an exchange of food is often a big part of it. Okay, good. Okay, thank you. I have a comment and a question. Okay. When Dasarath was looking for a qualified Brahmin for his Asmameda sacrifice, mm. 
One of his ministers informed him about a Brahmin who was enlisted to help a nearby kingdom to end a drought. Yes, Rishishringa. So you need grain to grow fruit and grains, or you need rain to grow grains or any kind of food. So the stock of symbolic reactions for the common people bring misfortune to the kingdom, and the Brahmins, they can purify the kingdom. Beautifully said. So, so uh, but my question, in Kuma Melis, they're very popular in India, where people go to bathe in a holy river, mixing with sadhus and mystics, mm-hmm. you know, to relieve themselves of lifetimes of simple activity. So the, you know, so that's the, so everything, the mercy of the Brahmins, or the, yes. you know, the Vaishnavas, the sadhus. But my question is this, in your Varnashram book, do you talk about um, karma yoga in relation with karma khandra or varnashram? We do talk about um, karma yoga, gyan yoga, dhyan yoga, and bhakti yoga as different ways of connecting with the Supreme. So we, okay. we talk about the essential, that it's essential to connect with the Supreme, it's essential to offer the results of what you're doing to the Supreme, it's essential to offer every moment of your work to the Supreme. And then we, we give four ways of understanding the Supreme. As the universal form, as Brahman, as Paramatma, and as Bhagavan. Of course, we favor Bhagavan understanding. And then we talk about uh, four main ways of connecting with the Supreme, and that's through Karma Yoga, Gyan Yoga, Dhyan Yoga, and Bhakti Yoga. And obviously, we favor Bhakti Yoga. But you know, we talk about the four ways of understanding the Supreme and the four ways of connecting with the Supreme. By the way, they they right. tend to connect with each other. You know, karma yoga tends to be more about the virat rupa. Gyan yoga tends to be more about the brahman. Dhyan yoga tends to be more about paramatma and bhakti yoga about bhagavan. I, I don't think we make that particular uh-huh. connection, but it, it, there is that also. So you deal with them separately from varnashram because it seems to get a little mixed in Bhagavad Gita. Well, we see it as a principle of Varnashram. A princi- and actually, our book is almost exclusively about Varna Dharma. We only have one chapter about Ashram Dharma. Um, and that we only talk about Ashram Dharma in relationship to Varna Dharma. We very deliberately wanted to avoid Ashram Dharma. Prabhupada says, says first Varna, then Ashram. And uh, trying to teach Ashram Dharma is going to put us right in smack dab in the middle of the culture wars going on right now in the world. Not a very good place to be. You know, to define anyway. The culture wars about sexuality that are happening in the world. It's just, it's it's not a very good place to be. It's not not a a favorable um, uh, business card to introduce yourself to the world to. With you know, whereas Varna Dharma, I I personally see that Varna Dharma is the absolute perfect bridge preaching because it's a hundred percent shastra, and it it is the bridge preaching of the Vedic society is Varna Dharma. But part of Varna Dharma, if we look look at the principles of Varna Dharma, one principle of Varna Dharma is that the fruits of your work are offered to the Supreme. That's a principle of making it Varna Dharma. Of making it a Dharma. 
And another principle of Varna Dharma is that every moment of your livelihood is an offering to the Supreme. So how do you do that? What does that mean? You know, you have to have a conception of the Supreme and you have to have a means of offering. So there are four main conceptions of the Supreme and four means of offering, four means of connection, four means of yoga. So I don't see that it's a separate topic. I mean, you could also say, rightly so, that the various processes of yoga and the various conceptions of the Supreme are all transcendent to Varna Dharma, that Varna Dharma is a bridge to that, rather, you know, but it exists separately and transcendently. That's true. But one of the ways in which Varna Dharma is a bridge to that transcendence is that connection with the Supreme is a principle of Varna Dharma. Otherwise, you're not doing Varna Dharma. Right. You know, you just you just have a job. Exactly. Yeah. That's why Ramananda Roy started the conversation with Varnashram. Exactly. And because that was a conversation about, you know, Prema Bhakti <laughs> and, and the Raga Marg, uh, Lord Chaitanya is saying, well, that's all external. But there's some conversations where Prabhupada says, Lord Chaitanya said that was external. But we're giving that as a template for society. Because frankly, you know, we're not all, I'm not on the platform of Ramananda Roy. I haven't met very many people who are. So it's, you know, that, that was that particular discussion that they were, you know, a kabaya. So, yes, from a transcendent position, the dharma of the varnas and ashramas is just a bridge. It's, it's, a, it's a platform. It's the airport. It's not the, it's not the plane. It's not the destination. But anyway, that is part of varna dharma. It is a principle of Varna Dharma. You know, the main principle of Varna Dharma is that your livelihood and your propensity are linked. That the way you earn your livelihood is linked to your natural propensities. So that's, you know, primary principle of Varna Dharma. And that's a principle of Varna Dharma that everybody likes, except managers who are cruel. <laughs> cruel managers who just want to fill whatever post with whatever people are, are there you know the communists who killed all, tried to kill all their brahmanas, satriyas and vaishas and, and you know, right, forced people to work against their propensities but everybody wants a means of livelihood that they like who doesn't want that you say to anyone who wants to enjoy their work Everyone's going to raise their hand. Who wants to do work that you find satisfying? Who wants to do work that's an expression of yourself? Everyone's going to agree with that. It's it's fantastic bridge preaching. Hey, how would you like to have a livelihood that is the best expression of you? Where you could be... If you do something... Exactly. Exactly. So, who's not going to be attracted to that? And then we can say, okay, now there's other way. Now, you, now let's go further to make that perfect. So, in order to make that perfect, you also have to do work that's honest. You also have to do work that's adding value to society and not harming society. 
you also have to cherish your sources of wealth, which was a lot of what we were talking about in today's class. You have to preserve the sanctity of your field of work, which each of the Varnas have there. We talked a little bit about that today, how the Brahmanas have to be into Vairagya and so they can't be compromised. So you have to maintain the sanctity of the field, and that's done in each of the four Varnas. The sanctity is maintained in a different way, sometimes the opposite way to each other. And one of the principles is that you have to have regular ceremonies, yagyas, of connecting with the Supreme. Another principle is that the fruits are offered to the Supreme. Another principle is that at every moment you should try to connect to the Supreme. Another principle is you work without ego. So I, I see them as, you know, intrinsically linked. Right. I, I, don't, I don't see it as a separate, although you can have it as a separate discussion also. You can say, even if your livelihood is, is a mess, you know, even if, even if your livelihood is a complete mess, according to Varna Dharma, you can still engage in one of the types of yoga. It's kind of hard to do karma yoga, um, you know, if, I, I think it's almost impossible to do karma yoga if your Varna Dharma is a mess. I don't know how you would do it. Mm-hmm. You know, if your karma is messed up, how do you do karma yoga? I just like... I don't know. I can't figure that out. You first right. got to have your karma together. And, and generally the prerequisites for Gyan Yoga and Dhyan Yoga is that you, you've already imbibed the principles of Karma Yoga. So it's pretty hard to do Gyan Yoga and Dhyan Yoga if your life's a mess. Although people are certainly trying. They're, they're, both of those types of yoga become very popular at the present time. But at least bhakti, we know for sure you can do it even if your karma is a mess because that's how the prostitute who was uh, trying to make Haridas fall down, she went right to bhakti. You know, she just immediately, she wasn't in Varnashram. She was operating outside of Varnashram. There's no, there's no prostitute Varna, you know. <laughs> not, not one of the Varnas. It's not included in any of the Varnas. So, you know, she just went right to bhakti. Or, or, you know, Migrari. Again, that's not included. His, his livelihood was not included in a varna. And he just went right to bhakti. Jaghai and Madai. So, you know, bhakti is such that even if your varna dharma is terrible, you know, you're totally outside. You can go right to bhakti. I, that's why it's recommended for the age. Yes. Because it's, it's such a mess. It's such a mess. Exactly. It's such a mess. But we should also try to build that bridge. We really should. We have the knowledge. Uh, we have the template. It's the perfect bridge. And people would be grateful if there was a sane and stable and peaceful society. Like, and they, then they'd be open to hearing us talk about Krishna playing his flute and having his Raslila. You know, right now, unfortunately, people look at us and just see, well, how do you treat women? How do you treat blacks? Those are the kind of questions they ask us because they're they're so um, inflamed, and it's it's really hard to just talk to people about you know Krishna throwing bell flutes with the coward boys. But yeah, I mean, Prabhupada wanted to do it. You know, he wanted to do it. He wanted us to bring. It's all over his books. He wanted us to bring a sane social structure to the society. 
At least to understand it properly. At least to understand it properly. Yes, let's do that first. Let's do that first. And then when we've understood it, we can tell people and people go, wow. Because right now, the the Xatrias who are trying to give a template for social justice and social peace don't know what they are doing. They really don't know what they're doing. Could I interject something? Yes, and then I really do have to go. Talking about free, I'm going to need to get some prasadam. (laughs) It it seemed like when we moved into the temple, that that kind of uh, was functioning in the temple. Whatever you could do, you would, or whatever the needful was. So we had that kind of working in the temple uh, paradigm when everybody was living in the temple. So um, it seemed like it was working for some time like that. And, and then when, but we didn't have it structured for how to expand it. And actually it didn't go so well also in when everyone lived in the temple after a while too. So could, could you put it in that perspective once? Well, yeah, first of all, it's really interesting you talk about doing the needful. I recently had an ISKCON leader say that we don't need to work according to our propensity because Prabhupada asked us to do the needful. So I went and I did the research and I could not find one single place where Srila Prabhupada used the words do the needful in terms of do something for Krishna even if it's not your propensity. I could not find any place. When Prabhupada talked about do the needful, it would be something like, you know... um, uh, we've sent a check in the mail it has to be taken to the bank it should be coming in the next few days please check it and do the needful it was about specific things like that I found one instance where Prabhupada was talking about it in terms of how people should do the work of their propensity Uh, as far as when we all lived in ashrams I see several problems with that first problem is a lot of people were not engaged according to their propensity they were just engaged according to what was needed, which is terrible management and against all the principles of Varnashram. It's fine to do that for one week as an emergency, but when you're doing that for months or years, it damages people. That's what Krishna says. It's not my opinion. If people don't want to believe the Bhagavad Gita, I don't know what to say. Krishna says, by Avaha, it becomes a vehicle of fear. He says, even if you can do someone else's work perfectly, you should not do it. It will be a vehicle of fear. It's better to die doing your own work. So I see a a huge problem when we all lived in ashrams, and it's still happening in most temples, is that is people not being engaged according to their propensity. Has that ever been critiqued? Have you ever critiqued that in an official way to explain where we went wrong? It's like around the 80s, the mid-80s, there was a lot of disturbances. And, and, um, and yes, somewhat. You can I see mean, it clearly. I mean, I taught ISKCON history for years at Bhaktivedanta College, um, but I never wanted the classes to be recorded. So, uh, you know, that that's there. The other problem is that ashram living is in the Varnashram system for... Uh, children and adolescents. It's not for adults. It's a school. The concept of living in the Guru's ashram, it's, a, it's a, something that happens when you're very young as a school. And you are meant to graduate. You are not meant to live in the Guru's ashram your whole life. Uh, there are some people who are perpetual brahmacharis. Just like out in the world, 
there are, uh, I was just the other day talking to someone who's doing what we call postdoc work. So they already have their PhD, but they're still studying and they're still researching. They're perpetual students. Many of them teach little, if at all. The brahmachari isn't a teacher. The brahmachari is a student. So some people stay a perpetual student, dependent, like a child, for their entire life. But to say that that is a template for society, that adults should remain a dependent student for their entire life, is not commensurate with Varnashram, and it's not commensurate with just common sense. So if the Brahma, it says in the Bhagavatam, if the brahmachari doesn't want to marry, then they can enter the Vanaprastha or the Sannyas Ashram. And generally that's decided by maximum age 24, 25. So if we're really going to follow principles of ashram, then practically speaking, nobody would be in the brahmachari ashram after 24, 25, with a few rare exceptions. Very, very unusual people who remain childlike and dependent their whole life and who are students their whole life. And those who are not you know, fit for marriage and who don't want to marry, they become vanaprastas. And they take on some responsibility in society. Once you hit your you know, early, mid-twenties, you should take on responsibility and not be a dependent child. So either you take responsibility for a spouse and children and a home and, and, and earning a livelihood, or you take responsibility for some preaching and some project that you, know, you grow up. So that expansion, is that what you think, Prabhupada, when you said 50% of my work isn't done? We were all living in the ashram practically at that time. And the next stage, as you're pointing out, is that we expanded. And as you pointed out a couple times, no one has a, a clear picture of how to do that. So right yeah. now there's... Yeah, that 50% of my work, we haven't been able to find a clear source for it. But in any case, Srila Prabhupada did say that one of the missions of the International Society for Krishna Consciousness was to develop Varnashram. Prabhupada talked a lot about developing society. You don't develop a society by how people live, living in an ashram like dependent children doing work that's not their propensity. I, I just, like, in what shastra, in what tradition, in what template, in what instruction is that anything more than a short-term situation? So... You know, to have that as that situation as some kind of ideal of surrender in Krishna consciousness is is shastrically ludicrous, and it's it's very harmful to people. And then instead of varna dharma and ashram dharma being a natural bridge to Krishna consciousness, having a social system like that destroys people's ability. People then they they they're they're so burnt out, a vehicle of fear. Krishna says. Then they struggle to chant their rounds. They struggle to offer their food. They struggle to get up in the morning. They struggle to just have the basic practices of Krishna consciousness. So, you know, we really messed that up. And why and how we really messed it up is not that difficult to understand. But anyway, we really messed it up, but better late than never. We still have, we have the template, we have the guidance, and let's go for it. You know, which is, and, and going for it is not about repressing women. That's not what Varnashram is about. What Varnashram is about is having everybody do for Krishna what they love to do and be able to maintain themselves in that way. That's what it's about. Having everybody take their talents, their proclivity, 
what they love to do and doing that for Krishna. And that's ultimately what we do in the spiritual world. We all do for Krishna. We all do the service for Krishna that's dearest to our own hearts. Some gopis collect herbs and not flowers and some collect flowers and not herbs. You know, we all do for Krishna what we love to do. And the reflection of that is in the Varna Dharma of this world. So I really do need to go. We talked about prasadam and prasadam is being served. Shiva Prabhupada Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.